Hello, I'm Derek Arden and welcome to Monday Night Live. Today I've got uh, an old friend of mine, somebody I met 12 years ago at a charity event when I was speaking for uh, for that charity, uh, Mike Clare. Mike's been uh, fascinated by charities and helped charities ever since he sold the retailer Dreams, which he sold for £200 million in 2008. Mike also has three forts in the Solent. One's a hotel, and I want to ask him about that later. Mike, uh, thanks for joining us. Welcome to uh, Monday Night Live. Where did the story start, Mike? How did you get into bed retailing? Uh, well, I'm glad to be with you, Derek, and uh, it's really interesting. I'm going to be, I think, live every Monday at 5 p.m. now. It's a new thing for me. Um, how did I get into bed retailing? Well, uh, you know, I it's very difficult. I wasn't a plan. I didn't sort of leave school and think, right, I, I, what I want to do is start a bed empire. Um, you sort of drift a bit, and I didn't really know what I was doing. I did actually uh, join a, a furniture retailer when I was 21, and they put me in charge of the mattress department. But then I was only there for about six months, and I moved on to office furniture. So I did actually, I suppose, come back to something that I, I'd known. Um, I always I went to Wickham University, which is a, a furniture town. Maybe that's got something to do with it. But the thing is, I just, I've always bought and sold things. So when I was at school, I bought and sold bikes, uh, LPs as they, albums or whatever they were then. I used to buy and sell tents um, because just got into these frame tents and I'd know how much they were and I'd buy secondhand ones and sell them for more than I bought them for. To me, retailing is, you know, it's quite simple. If you make something, you've got product design, all sorts of manufacturing issues. That's just you know, some people make a success of manufacturing, but but retailing seems easy. So if you go to retail, retail is something that everyone's got. So everyone's got a bed. Most people spend a third of their life in bed. Most people are born in a bed. Most people die in a bed. Most people are conceived in a bed. <laughs> so, um, you know, bed's a pretty important thing in your life. Uh, and the only problem with beds is they're big bloody things. So you've got big showrooms that take up a lot of space and you've got to deliver them to people. But apart from that, they haven't got technology. They haven't really got um, any fashion element to them or anything like that. And it's just it's just a, a, a block of really wooden foam and, and springs that um, if, if you if you can get it right, then you, you buy them for a, a few hundred quid and you sell them for twice the price in essence. So when people come to me with problems and when I was running dreams, you know, and, and I said, look, we're doing such a simple business. All we're doing is we're buying beds and we're selling them for more than we bought them for. It couldn't be any simpler business. So you know i'm not a complicated person so be, being simple is i suppose one of the one, one of the, the the reasons i started dreams that's a that's a great learning point but hang on your wasn't your first shop in hillingdon just one yeah. shop um, yeah, yeah. and you need cash to keep opening shops don't you um well not always i mean to be honest if you take the customer's deposit up front uh and then you haven't paid the manufacturer for Four weeks after they've delivered it to you and they're actually a positive cash flow can come from that um i'm not suggesting that's exactly the right way of running a business but it's not as negative as it as it first seems um yeah no in those days in in the late 80s when i started if you whatever money you you'd got the banks would, would double near enough you know as long as you put your house on the line um so you know i needed i reckon i needed 20 grand i only had about two or three I sold my car, borrowed some money on my, what was it then? It was um, MasterCard or whatever it was for um, uh, for a new kitchen or whatever I said. 
And I got to about 10 grand, went to the bank and they'd say, yeah, well, we'll give you another 10 grand. So I got to 20 grand, it, you know, well, it wasn't rocket science, but uh, you know, you if you really want to be successful, small things like that don't let, let them get in your way. It's, it's, it's perseverance really, and being determined and, you know, crossing bridges when you need to, when you need to cross the bridges. Did you have the vision from going from one shop to 200 shops? Did you see that or was it difficult? Yeah, no, I never wanted to just run one or two bed shops. It's, I'd always wanted a, I sort of, I couldn't envisage exactly what I did, but not, not far off. I wanted a successful big bed retail with lots of stores. And in the essence, once you start a store and you've got a successful formula, starting another one, it's not that uh, difficult because you just got to find the right, store you know you 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 know i would just i wouldn't use agents i would just drive to the next town up the motorway or wherever geographically was the next town look for uh, something to let uh, and negotiate a, a lease with the landlord and you know put the blue carpet down buy some stock put an advert in the local paper situations vacant salesman wanted uh, have a grand opening have a cake in the shape of a bed invite the mayor and on to the next one <laughs> you make it sound so easy gee whiz um so tell me um how how long was it before you opened your second store um it was about 18 months it was really okay. quite quick so the first store was too small basically that was my problem i didn't realize that you needed some stock as as well as the actual display stock so um yeah it was too small and in fact i kept the first store uh, store um, as well as the second one, one was selling sofa beds, one was selling beds. Um, and then I, my third store in Maidenhead. And um, when I got to about five stores, I wanted to get rid of my first store, which was too small, but I couldn't really get rid of it. I was, I was struggling to get rid of it. And someone had come to me and said, um, it's, I wanted to buy a grandfather clock. <laughs> and there isn't anywhere you can go to to buy grandfather clocks apart you can go to john lewis or you can go to harrods or somewhere and or you can go to a second hand shop and antique stores but i thought grandfather clocks are cool things everyone loves a grandfather clock it's the heartbeat of your home so and i reckon it was all sales per square foot and these things were a couple of grand and they only took up a square foot so um i started the grandfather clock emporium in my first sofa bed shop um but then after a while i realized i was making more money selling beds than selling clocks so I closed that down. I always say it took too much of my time up. Which point did you go from um, division four to division three when you had to start employing back office people, not doing the accounts yourself and, and really bigging it up? Well, I, you know, everyone says you've got to be able to be experienced to do everything yourself. So I would, you know, I do the deliveries in the evening, uh, not all all of the deliveries, but I would do some deliveries in the in the evening myself. I do the paperwork on a Sunday because we had to be closed on a Sunday in those days. Um, and then, um, you know, I do the selling during the day. I would I would do it all. And then you gradually start, you know, you get a good manager and then you get someone else, a good salesman and you get a, a buy a van and get some drivers and you just it just sort of happens really so more by instinct i think choosing the right staff is as i think you we said earlier derek is you know it's absolutely critical to anything so whatever business anyone's going to run unless you do it purely as a one-man band you're an author or you're jk rowling or you're a heart surgeon or someone that you're using your hands if you're going to employ people then really the skill is necessarily the business the skill is actually employing the right people that are going to 
do whatever you want them to do and making sure that they're loyal and and hardworking and motivated and 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 they've got the right drive and and they form the right team so that that's a that that's the biggest skill in any business i think okay you walk right into the next question then mike how did you do it did you have a complicated interview process like some of these hr departments do or did you just have two or three questions you ask them well i i think if if someone comes and they want to work in your finance department you you expect them to be good at maths and you assume they can do that or if they're going to be a driver then you expect them to have not many points on their driving license and they can drive so you sort of assume they can do the job they come for you do have to test for that but to me it's all the the background that what what is then to me if if in an interview they've got a mask on and they're trying to portray to me this mask and that's not really them behind that mask is what their real self is and it's trying to understand what really makes them tick you know what 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 annoys them what what makes them happy what do they really want in life you know is this a temporary job is it a long-term career is it you know so it's trying to find that out and asking the normal strengths and weaknesses questions doesn't really get you there because people are sort of coached in how to go to interviews nowadays so i would ask them the most unusual questions that you could ever think i'd ask people how much do you think i weigh uh, and i'd say i'd say what well, you know, I would say the most outlandish things. Do you think my tie matches my my shirt? Do you think it's, do you think? And I would ask some weird things, not because I want to know the answer to that. I just wanted to see how they react and whether they'd panic. So if if in, in life or in business, everyone's under pressure at some point or other. So if they can't handle pressure, then then that's a problem in itself. So I try and put them under pressure, not in a nasty way, like a, in a bullying way, but I'd want to put them under pressure to see where they start all going red in the face and, and stuttering and going all weird. Um, so, you know, there's, but then also I'd want to make them laugh. I remember finding someone that I thought was qualified, was good, was quite nice, quite light, and everything was right. But somehow I just, I didn't think they were right, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And I realized when he's talking and I'm not really listening to what he's saying, and I think what it is, is he's never smiled. He hasn't smiled once. So I asked him to tell me a joke. And I said, uh, can you tell me a joke? He said, what do you mean a joke? I said, what sort of joke? I said, anything. It can be a rude joke. It can be a knock-knock joke. Whatever you want. And he couldn't tell me a joke. He uh, froze. He went all weird. And not that I wanted him to tell me jokes, but I just felt, you know, there's something funny about the personality. So, yeah, it's just getting into what makes people tick. I always like it if they've got... Um, you know, why they've left their other job, you know, that's always important to me. If it was a more senior position, we'd always, my wife and I used to take the employee, I should be a bit sexist to assume it's a guy, but it wasn't always a guy, but saying it was a guy and we wanted him as a, as a marketing director or something, we'd take him out to dinner at quite a posh restaurant, but him and his wife, my wife and I would take him out to dinner and say, look, we've done two interviews. It's a big career move for you. It's a big decision for us. Let's go out for dinner and really, you know, have a couple of glasses of wine and, and really get to know each other because you want to join the right company and I want to have the right employee. And the trick of that dinner was always my wife chatting to to the to 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 her, to her and she would say, "Oh no, we, you know, we we don't like to go on holiday because of." And they'd say something funny or you know, he's and she would find more out from the wine that mm. I were talking to him. And a couple of glasses of wine always relaxes people anyway. So I would do all sorts of things at an interview. I had a guy once that drove into my car in the car park um, outside our head office. 
and a guy came for an interview and he reversed parking into my car. And my <laughs> PA says, oh, Mike, the, the guy's come for the interview, but he's reversed into your car. And, uh, and I, I couldn't believe it. Anyway, he said, do you want to see him or just not, should you not, just not see him? I said, no, I'll see him. So he was insured and everything, but he was really good. And I gave him the job. And then that, that, was, that wasn't the headline, but it was, a, it was an article in the local paper. Man, you know, bloke gives job to the man that drove into his car. So I got some PR out of it anyway. Come on, then. What was the question you asked him? First question: Why did you drive into my car? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, he was just nervous. You know, he's he said, "Oh, I don't know. I was nervous coming to the interview." Wow, 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 wow. Okay, so um, you built it up. So we talked about having five or ten stores. How many did you have at the end? Two hundred. Just over two hundred. Yeah. So I got to know the country because I didn't know where towns were. I mean, you know, we're all fairly good at geography, but, you know, you do get to know. So every time we opened a, a store, I would always go to the opening. And, uh, you know, we had a whole team that would open stores. With, you know, some people would, you know, set it up and, you know, there'd be a, a team and they'd be opening sort of 20 stores a, a, a year sort of thing. And at that point, did you have, um, were you, were you, did you own still own 100% of the shares? Did you... Um... Had you given them well, to other people? Did you have some good non-execs? No, I, I, I never gave any shares away. I always used to say when I sold the business, I still had 100% of the shares. But actually, that's a lie because I only had 95%. I gave my wife 5%. And that was a weak moment I don't like to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I had 100%. My wife and I had 100%. I did have 95%. She had 5 It's only because I thought you couldn't own 100% of the shares yourself originally when I set the company up someone else had to be a shareholder which isn't actually the case but um you know uh, if, if I had a board of directors I'd really reward them well with with bonuses and targets and commissions and some sort of incentive schemes and you know they didn't have to have shares you know I the shares were mine I made that very clear from day one but they would be very well rewarded and I used to have incredible bonus schemes for every department so so even if in head office we'd have Hobbs, it sounds like chocolate biscuit, but Hobbs was head office bonus scheme. And then you'd have dibs, which is driver's incentive bonus scheme. And so, you know, drivers would only be get their bonus if they did so many deliveries a week that were without any damage. They didn't leave footprints in the customer's doorway or they damaged the, the, the bed or, or anything like that. So they had to have a successful week and then they'd and do so many deliveries and then they'd get a bonus. And, Obviously, salesmen, it's easy with commissions and things like that. And it's always very controversial with salesmen's commissions as whether you incentivize the salesman individually uh, as mm. whether you, or whether you incentivize the store. So say you have about six or seven salespeople in a store and the manager and, a, and an assistant manager. If you incentivize each person, then when someone walks into the store, everyone's pouncing on that person, trying to sell them a bed and their customers sort of, you know, doesn't have a very good experience if you if you do it as a group a bonus that the store has to hit the target then everyone's a bit more sort of helping each other and also the you know if a salesman's off one day and they spent two hours with the customer trying to sell them something and then the customer doesn't buy then but then comes back and orders it the next day and the customer and the salesman's off there's always a bit of argy-bargy about who gets the commission so it got very complicated systems, but in the end, we perfected them. And that's, and I'm, I'm jumping on a bit, 
but you're going to ask me in a minute when I sold it. We were, well, I'll come back to how I run it in a bit. But when I sold it, that was one of the things that the private equity company thought they would change because they'd say, oh no, Mike's too generous with his commission schemes. It's miles too complicated. So then they'd abolish my commission scheme that I'd taken 15 years perfecting and tweaking and, 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 and making and, and dealing with all the little nuances that made it not work. So I covered every angle and I made it, I got all the terms and conditions of everything with my bonus commission schemes exactly right. And it really incentivized and worked for the company and them. And they thought it was too complicated and too generous. So they abolished it. And then of course, they lost a load of salespeople and think that because they thought they knew better. So, that, so was, that, it a, was it a combination of team bonus and individual bonus? Because we all hate yeah. it when someone rushes in, rushes up to you and, you know, which one do you want, a red one or a blue yeah. one? You know, yeah, that's... Yeah, no, I agree. No, that, that's the whole trick is you must never, you know, so we would have huge, we'd spend massive amounts of time on sales training. And that was one of the things I used to get personally involved in myself. And it's all about just not pouncing on a customer uh, 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 as they come into the store and making them feel at ease. And, you know, so one of the things I always used to say is, um, you know, if you go into a store, any, any store, say you go into, I don't know, it's not Dixon's nowadays, but any big ticket item store, and a salesman comes up and you say, oh, good afternoon, can I help you? Well, everyone knows you're not meant to say that. So all the training says, you should never ask a closed question because the customer always says, no, it's okay, I'm just looking. So, but in the end, I never understood why I would go into a store myself and really well, a good John Lewis and a, a respectable store. And these salesmen would say, can I help you? And I thought, well, either they don't do um, staff training or the staff don't like it. And I talked to, I remember talking at a lunch with some of my sales team once, and I was really trying to get them to be ever so honest with me. And I said, I said, why don't you say, why, why don't you go up and say, talk about the weather or talk about, you know, what's the, what bed you sleep on at the moment or something like that. Why, why is it that you, you know, you keep going and saying, can I help you? And they say, because it's easy, because we're so worried about what to say, we get nervous. So if we say, can I help you? Um, it makes us, we don't mind saying that. It may, we're more relaxed in saying that. But actually the customer is more relaxed in saying, no, it's okay, I'm just looking. The trick is just to ignore that the customer said, no, it's all right, I'm just looking. And said, no, that's fine, yes. Moments, have a look around. We've got a sale on at the moment. The bunk beds are half price at the moment. And over there, what, and they, what did you want a headboard as well as a bed? And you just like ignore the fact they said they were just looking and start talking to them. But it's actually quite a nice, it's like a human interaction where, I don't know, monkeys scratch each other when they meet or something. And, and humans, when they go into a store, the salesman says, can I help you? And the customer says, no, it's all right, I'm just looking. It's just like, a, like, hi, how are you? And people say fine, and they don't mean they're fine. They just, it's just a reaction thing. Wow, you've, um, you're opening a can of worms. I want to ask you more questions, but I think we're going to move on, Mike. Okay. I'm going to ask you to come back at some stage on this uh, sales pitch and the psychology of it and everything else, because I'm fascinated by it, and I know lots of people are. So um, come on, the crunch question is, it was your baby. You built it up from nowhere. You owned all the shares. Why did you sell it, and how did you feel on the next day? Um well, my wife had wanted me to sell it when we had about 50 stores and then like 80 stores and then 100 stores. She was always on to like, you know, let's sell the business because, you know, what happens if something goes wrong and, you know, we've been successful, we've built the business up and, you know, she was always on to me to, to sell it. And then 
um, this was then um, uh, to 20, uh, when did I say 2008, so 2007. And, you know, the, the store had got, we'd started manufacturing our own beds and um, we got franchises uh, in different countries and um, we, would, we were really successful. And the next step was sort of retailing in Europe and, and, and in France, we we're going to do Belgium actually first. And, and it was some big steps I was going to do. And I kept thinking, well, uh, I keep being successful, but maybe there is a step that I'm going to get to and it's a step too far and I'm not going to be successful. And then it's all going to come crashing down. So, mm. you know, maybe I'm being a bit sort of greedy and, and keep trying to build this business up. So maybe I should sell it. So, but then if you go to sell a business, if you've never sold a business before, I knew how to sell beds, but I didn't know how to sell a business and I'd never sold a business. So um, it's quite a daunting process. Who do you go to? You, you, they talk about all these, it's like going into the lion's den into the city and there's all this sort of special talk and all this vendor due diligence and information memorandums and all these corporate lawyers. And it's like, it's a whole minefield of different, a language and you know that and that was so important to me that uh, if I was going to sell my business it had to be a bloody good deal so you know you eventually get some corporate lawyers you get some corporate sort of state agents as I call them they hated me calling them that but basically that's what they were they're trying to sell your business um, and uh, yeah you, you whittle it down to to two or three and you have a bit of con competitive tension so my my I was lucky that the timing was very good in that it was just before Lehman Brothers in 2008. Corporation tax was only 10%. Um, and, uh, and we had a lot of interest. So, mm -hmm. but it was, it was getting very, very tight towards, I sold it on the 8th of March, 2008. So it was very, it was six weeks away from corporation tax going up to, um, uh, what was it going from 10% to 8% because it was unlimited taper relief. Uh, and then um, and then Lehman Brothers crashed. So to me, timing was really important. How supportive were the banks, Mike? Um, you know, we've got a few bankers on here. Um, yeah. I don't mean, uh, you know, to go into too de much detail, but uh, was your original bank supportive of you or were you um, being not, caught? Not really. Them? I mean, what it needed was banks to support the private equity. So the private equity company that eventually brought us uh, was supported by three individual banks and none of the... the no one bank wanted to take all the risk to put the money up to the private equity. So three banks sort of triaged together. And they all, I'll never forget in Alan Overy's meeting room 158 or something. And, you know, it's these huge, great, massive buildings. And everyone has their own lawyers. So I had my own lawyers. Private equity had their own lawyers. Each, each of the three banks had their own lawyers. Then my management team that weren't me, but... The, the, the rest of the board had their own lawyers and there's all these lawyers it's just like massive costs and everyone had their own room where they would go and have breakouts to and it just got so complicated but you know eventually it got across the line yeah your timing was fantastic actually more i think about this you know this was before before the big crash when uh, money was easy to come by private equity what did private equity think they were going to do with the business increase the profits by 50 percent yeah, absolutely. They thought they'd do it overnight and they outsourced the delivery uh, and, and they we used to do it internally and, and they changed a lot of things. And in, within five years, they'd, they'd run the business into the ground and it went, uh, it went bust and went for a pre-pack. So I'd put 20 million back into it, but um, which I lost. But um, they, they were just being too greedy, really. They thought they knew better. You know, it's sort of quite 
so so I had no control because I didn't have a I, I didn't have a seat on the board. I just I bought twenty million pounds worth of shares in the new co. But um, they thought they knew this business better than me. And I'm saying, don't do that because that won't work. No, don't do that because that won't work. I've tried that before. No, and now I'm trying to help them because I've got money invested. But they they thought they knew better. And you think, you know, it's sort of it's like a bit of an insult, but it's it's also like stupidity that. Yeah. How can they really think they knew better? And I'm I'm trying to help them anyway. But hey did they keep you, did they keep you on as a consultant on the eighth of March, or did they just say bye bye, Mike? You no no bye bye bye. I said that, and I said I wasn't. I said I I don't want to be working for someone else. I said I don't want to earn out, and I don't want all that. I I I wasn't in for that. I said I'll reinvest and and just just as an investment, but I don't want to be uh, in there. I did end up doing some free helping them for free really because they came to me and said my it's all gone pear shaped what should we do uh, and i tried to help them but uh, it was a sort of bit too late really um but but they were it's fine now it's now been brought by another private equity company and they've turned it all around and it's doing really well and they're I using they, they're using your tips well I, I like to think they would you know um i still own the head office they still pay me some nice rent for the head office but but that's about my only involvement Okay, well, anyone's got any questions for Mike on that areas, uh, don't forget to put them in the chat box, short, sharp, uh, specific questions. Mike, can we turn to those, to that hotel in the Solent, Spit, Spithead Forts? Um, I was going to ask you, why did you buy it? Because I thought that's, that's a bit too blunt, isn't it? But we know each other well. Yeah, well, when I sold the company, it's, um, I, I thought, um, you know, you think you're Midas and everything turns to gold and you think you're really brilliant. Um, but basically all I could do was buy and sell beds really well. But, you know, and anything else I did wasn't quite as successful. And there's a lot of people that, that are in that similar sort of situation. I, I bought really unusual properties. So I bought a monastery in Worcestershire that I'd spent six million on doing up. Uh, I bought three castles in Scotland a chateau in Wales and three forts in the in the Solent. So it was these my love of unusual buildings that I wanted to restore and save. So there was a genuine sort of passion about that. Um, but I, I didn't want to just do it um, just purely for, for the love of it. I wanted to try and make them commercial. My idea was to, to, uh, to use them as venues for weddings or conferences or, uh, or uh, milestone birthdays or anniversaries. So to me, if you have a hotel with bedrooms and restaurants and, and, and lounge areas, um, then if everyone comes at the same time, whether there's a bride and groom or whether there's a chairman and it's a conference, everyone turns up together, everyone eats the same food at the same time. And it just seems an easier thing than people checking in and checking out and trying to run it like a hotel. So my, my concept was exclusive use hire of these different venues, um, which didn't really work. <laughs> Um, I didn't really get my marketing right. I didn't really, you know, there was, and I'd rushed, I'd, I was doing too many at once. So in the end, we turned them into hotels. And then I sort of looked at myself and thought, I'm, I'm running hotels and they're like a nightmare. You know, everyone's complaining about, you know, the chef or, you know, the, 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 there's so many ways of running a hotel that's complicated and it's everything I didn't want to do. So I, I went about selling them off and I've still got the forts left. Oh, two of the forts anyway. And you sold the hotels and, and the monastery? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I sold all those. Yeah, oh, I didn't really make much money on them. I sort of broke even on what I'd spent on buying them and doing them up. But it was a great journey. I sort of feel I've left something in society that I've renovated, and 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 there's something nice about it. But um, didn't really make a lot of money. It's not 
wouldn't recommend doing it if you want to make a fortune. And Spithead Fort's closed at the moment. I did look it up on TripAdvisor. They yeah. wanted £999 for me to stay there. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was closed. Yeah, no. Well, we closed it when COVID broke out. And, and it was sort of a bit of an excuse, really. I, you know, I want to sell them anyway. And, you know, it's running them. They were, wasn't making money. So I used the opportunity to not furlough everyone, but make everyone redundant, which, is, which has been fine. Everyone's happy with that. And you've, um, what, do you, what do you do on the charity front, Mike? You, you said 300 different um, charities, or did I get that wrong when we were speaking on, um, on Saturday? No, we, on the charity thing. So we, we're not a charity that, uh, so it's called the Clare Foundation. It's not a charity that makes you cry and tugs at your heartstrings and, and makes you give them money. Uh, the Clare Foundation helps other charities to become more commercial and efficient. So we try and um, ju just help charities uh, um, be more uh, commercial and entrepreneurial. Uh, basically, charities are run just the same as a business, and they've got an HR department, an IT department, and employ staff and pay rent. But um, quite often, they're volunteers and they're nicey, nicey people. Nice to have as your neighbour, or, or you know, they're church-going people. They're nice, honest people, but they're not very commercial. So we try and help these sort of charities to be a bit more. Um, a bit more business-like in the way that they run their charities so that more of their money goes to their beneficiaries rather than uh, just get wasted on administration. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, we're nearly coming to the end of our recorded time, Mike. That's been absolutely brilliant. I'd like to dig down another time on some of those sales techniques and yeah. uh, the negotiation techniques that you and I have in common, but uh, <laughs> talk about it in, in a slightly different way and by the by the way uh, everybody uh, mike's coming on uh, the top masterclass on the 4th of november and he's kindly sponsored it uh, from one of his charities so thanks very much for that mike so if you want to mike, no, i'm looking forward to it meet mike in person do join graham and i for uh, 17 tips in uh, 17 minutes or 17 sessions oh. in 17 minutes each mike the last question i ask everybody if you had one tip that was absolutely crucial for people going forward in 2022-23, what would it be? Um, well, I, it's, it's, it's not very exciting. I sort of feel like there's this magic thing that I could tell people and it would really help them in their business or something, but it's not. It, to me, it's like specialise in one thing, don't keep doing lots of different things. Specialise in one thing that you love and you enjoy, because otherwise you're going to hate it, and, and just work hard. It, to me, it's it's perseverance it's about determination and it's just about not giving up so it's hard work and that's a bit boring but it is what makes you successful more than anything else so i always say you need to be successful you need a little bit of luck and a little bit of skill you don't need to be einstein or something and you need um and you need to work hard but they're not on equal quantities it's not a third of each of those you need only maybe a little bit of skill and a little bit of luck you need shed loads of hard work and it's just perseverance and just deciding what you want to do and sticking to it and keep perfecting it and being better than your competitors. I don't see it that complicated. No, it sounds like um, running dreams was a lot easier than running in a hotel from what you said. Yeah, uh, no, more moving parts. Mike Clare, thanks for joining uh, Monday okay. Night Live today. And will you come back and join us again and talk about some of those uh, psychological sales tips that you mentioned? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'd love to. Brilliant. If you're watching this uh, on YouTube or listening to this on the Negotiations 
podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to join us live at, at uh, one on one Monday night. And could I ask uh, members today to give Mike the usual round of applause? Thank you very much. Looks Thank funny you. when he's on mute, but I... <laughs> thanks anyway. <laughs>